Well, good morning. How's everybody today? Good. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Mount Horeb, and I want you to know it's a genuine honor to be able to stand before you this morning and to be able to, to preach from God's Word and spend time with you today. Um, I don't know if you know this, as I said earlier, but we are 10 days away from Christmas Day. I mean, it's literally right around the corner, and a lot of us in the room, we've been waiting for this for a very, very long time, and now it's actually here, and now we're like, wait a minute, we've got 10 days left to get ready for this thing? But it's going to be an awesome time, and I look forward to it every single year, and we've been in the middle of a series right now called Nativity. Has anybody enjoyed this series? Has it been a, a good one? I mean, for me, in preparation each and every week, it's been a, an eye-opening thing for me once again to revisit the birth of Jesus, this nativity scene that we see every single year and maybe see it fresh with new eyes and a new heart and what God's wanting to show me even this year. From the very beginning of December, we as a church global have been a part of what's called Advent. And this season in preparation for Christmas Day as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, all the month long as we get closer and closer, we kind of align ourselves once again with what it must be like to have waited for the, the coming of the Messiah, the promised one. And Advent means arrival. And so for a lot of us, I'm afraid that when it comes to this type of year, time of year, we're only focused on that one day. We, we, we keep ourselves from being able to slow down and say, God, remind us once again of what it's like to wait on you to do something new and afresh in our life. So my prayer for us, even now, as we get started, is for the next 10 days that we would be able to focus fully on this Advent season, waiting and anticipating to celebrate the birth of Jesus together. I don't know about you, but it seems like Christmas every year, though, gets longer and longer away. It takes longer and longer to finally get there. It seems like they move it back each and every year. And I felt like that all the time as a kid. Maybe you did, too. And my family, we had like certain traditions in the Miller family that we did every single year. And usually that entailed all the cousins coming together, all the family to my grandparents' house in a small farmhouse in Indiana out in the middle of nowhere. We'd come together and it was always like the most fun time, everybody being together, preparing for, for Christmas. But the thing I was most worried about, guess what, was opening gifts. And it seemed like every single year my parents and my family invented ways to keep us from doing that. It was like something new. Oh, now we got to do this. My dad was the worst. So my dad, all my cousins were like, oh my gosh, Phil, again. He'd be like, hey, listen, guys, we're going to read the whole nativity story, and then we're going to do this. Everybody's got to say something they're thankful for before we open a gift. They just like dragged on. We're like, please, dad, come on. Just let us get to this thing that we want to do so badly. But every year was the same thing. My grandparents had this large porcelain nativity set that sat in their living room. They bring it out during Christmas time, and looking back now, it's something I'm fond of, but at the time, it was such an annoyance, because we'd all sit down, we'd read the whole narrative once again, the whole story, we're like, yes, Dad, we know, we read this last year and the year before, too, and then everyone would get a piece of the nativity set, all the cousins, and we'd have to come then and bring our piece and set it down together on the table and say what this piece had to do with the whole story, and it went forever, and it was a large nativity set, all the characters, and so we take turns doing our part and saying our thing. And sometimes you got like the easy stuff. Like you got Mary. You're like, finally, I got Mary. It's meaningful. You come and sit down and be like, she gave birth to Jesus. What are you going to do? Like, and then you're the other cousin who gets the donkey. And you're like, I don't even remember this part in the story. And so you bring the donkey and you put it down. And he's like, he provided the hay for baby Jesus to lay his head on. I was like, please. Every year was the same. But as a kid, when this would happen, to me, the nativity was an annoyance. The nativity was a roadblock to getting to the things that I really wanted to do. Like to focus on the birth of Jesus and to read the story and put the pieces together. If I'm honest, it was something that got in the way of what I really wanted to be attentive to. And for me as a kid, that was opening the gifts. 
You know, for a lot of us in this room, maybe the nativity scene is something that is technically a part of the Christmas story. We know that. We've maybe seen the scene with Mary, Joseph, the wise men, all the pieces and parts. But if we're honest, maybe it's not something we've ever actually seen, like really seen with our eyes and been able to perceive as a nativity scene. As I've gotten older, it's no longer an annoyance to me or a hindrance or a roadblock, but now this scene each and every year is something that when I see Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, the star, the angels, I mean, it stirs something in my soul to realize that there's something special that we celebrate each and every year. And it shouldn't be something that's annoying to us or getting in the way, but it should awaken us to the beauty of the nativity, this birth of Jesus. It makes me wonder how many of us in the room this morning, 10 days from today, as we sit around the tree, as we spend time with family, as we eat food, as we celebrate together, how many of us will miss completely what this is all really about? We might see it, but do we really see the beauty of the birth, the wonder of it all? You see, the beginning of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament, each one of them have their own expression or uh, version of the birth of Jesus. And each one of those stories tells a different piece or a part of what took place as Jesus. God pulled on flesh and became one of us to walk the earth. They tell their own version of this story. Now, Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, this particular Gospel actually gives us some details that the others don't. In each and every one of the Gospels, they're, they're pointing to different individuals in the story that perhaps got it. They saw what was happening here with Nativity, with the birth of Jesus. But many characters completely and totally missed it, what was going on. And for some of them, it was right in their backyard. And so it says in Matthew chapter 2, we're introduced to a new group of people that are only present in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So only in this particular book, we're introduced to a group of people that are known as the Magi. And the Bible says they've come from the east all the way to Jerusalem to celebrate and to worship this newborn baby. Now, it only shows up in in Matthew specifically, and probably a lot of us in the room, you've traditionally come to know the Magi as being how many? Three, right? Three wise men, three Magi. But truth is, the Bible doesn't give us any kind of number on how many actually come. We know there are three gifts that are brought, so traditionally we believe it to be three individuals that come to worship Jesus, but we don't know for sure. And the, the Magi have a fascinating history. They only show up a couple times within Scripture as a whole, And it's interesting to me that they would show up in this particular story, one of the most important stories in all of the Bible, the birth of Jesus. But these magi, they came from Persia, from the east. They they were a Persian priestly caste. They were actually full of a lot of authority from where they come from. They were an ancient Persian religion and priests from that religion. They were actually the only ones of the characters within the gospel story that, that are mentioned that are not located from Jerusalem itself, but they've come, some scholars believe, from 400 to 700 miles away to come and worship Jesus. Now, Persia partially is made up of Babylon, ancient Babylon. And so what we find out is this Magi, they've traveled from a long ways away to come and worship the king, this new king. The King James Version actually calls them wise men, which is one of the reasons we call them wise men oftentimes when we talk about the nativity as well. They're translated as wise men. They were seers. They were dreamers. They had a lot of power and authority. 
And some scholars believe that it's actually the same word that's used in the Old Testament to talk about this group of people that the Hebrew named Daniel was placed over. So let me set the stage for you. In the Old Testament, Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem and takes many of the brightest and best of the Hebrew people back with them to Babylon. And it's known as exile. Now, if these Hebrew people lived in Babylon for this period of time in Persia from the east, more than likely there's some stories that they have always held true about a Messiah who was going to come one day that left residue there in Babylon. Or potentially Daniel the Hebrew in Babylon during exile, if he is truly put over these wise men, these magi, more than likely he told them about this Messiah who was going to come hundreds of years later and rescue God's people. And so these magi are not just some dudes who happen to come across something. More than likely, this comes from many hundreds of years before Jesus is born and has been placed within them by the Hebrew people in Persia and in Babylon. Now, as a part of their religion, these wise men, these magi, they're actually internationally known as a reputation for astrology. They believe that what happened in the sky and in the stars was connected tightly somehow to what was happening here on earth. Some scholars believe that they actually, in 6 to 7 AD, there was a time when Jupiter and Saturn aligned with one another. And Jupiter was known to be a kingly or a royal planet. Saturn was associated with the Jewish people. And so perhaps when the Magi saw this happen, they decided to come and see this baby Jesus who was born, this new king of the Jews. Now these strange men, these Magi, otherwise are uninvolved in the narrative of Christ. And to have made a note that what was happening in the sky was worthy enough to come and significant enough to come all the way to Jerusalem. A little side note, but the scriptures don't actually tell us that the Magi show up at the stable with baby Jesus being born, but they actually show up to a house with Mary and Jesus there. Some scholars believe this could have happened anytime after Jesus' birth all the way to a couple years old when they finally made it there to come and worship Jesus. This reminds me so much of what happened here in Lexington in 2017 which was the great American eclipse. Remember this? And it was like hysteria everywhere, right? And it should be. It didn't happen since 1918 was the last time we saw a total solar eclipse that you could see anywhere in the U.S. And so if you remember this, in 2017, there was a 70-mile stretch of land from Oregon all the way to South Carolina where you would be able to see a total solar eclipse. And what was interesting, if you remember this, there were people that came from all over the country miles and miles away, right here to our little hometown of Lexington with their little lawn chairs, to come and sit down and watch this event take place that only took three to five minutes. I met people here during that time that drove all the way from Miami, Florida, to come to Lexington, South Carolina, because we were the epicenter of this great event with their lawn chairs to watch this thing happen. They'd be like, well, see ya, we're going home. I mean, if people are going to travel to come see something like that in 2017, These magi, they believe what they're coming to see written in the stars was something much, much grander and something much, much bigger. They believe there was a new king who was coming to earth and it was worthy of them to be able to travel. It was significant enough to come and see what they could experience with Jesus. So these magi are introduced to us in Matthew chapter two, but immediately following we're introduced to another person and this person's name is Herod, King Herod. His actual name was Herod Antipas, and he was a bad dude. There's so many things we could say, but just know he was not good. He was over a large portion of Israel at that point in time, and in stark contrast to the geographical distance that the Magi come from, he's right there in the backyard of what takes place when Jesus is born, Herod himself. Now, he's a paranoid king. 
He's worried about everything. History tells us he's killed portions of his family to make sure that he was able to preserve his power. And so you get a little sense of why he reacts the way that he reacts when these magi show up. In chapter three, it says this. When King Herod heard this, that he was, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written in the Old Testament. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people called Israel. So first you have the Magi introduced to us. They've come from 400 to 700 miles away to come and worship this new king. Then you have King Herod, who gets together the scribes, all the smartest and best of the religious world at that point in time to say, what don't I know that's about to take place? You know what's so interesting to me? The only people in the story, one, aren't Jewish who understand what's going on here. The only people in the story who really know what's going on come from 700 to 400 miles away. And those who are in the backyard of this event that's about to take place have no clue. Herod says, tell me what I don't know. They explain it to him. Things that the Magi already knew. So the author wants you to make sure you don't miss this. Within a few verses, juxtaposed to one another, is the knowledge and the desire to come and worship Jesus by the Magi. And right after is the paranoia and the ignorance of Herod, who's located just miles away from the nativity, and he doesn't see it. The authors want us to note that geographically, religiously, nationally, those are the only people who are far away who actually understand what's taking place here. And here's what I'm worried about this morning, and myself first and foremost. Sometimes when it comes to the Christmas season that we do each and every year, our proximity can affect our receptivity. Our proximity to this event can affect the way that we receive what takes place within this event. As I look around this room, I know there are many in here this morning who have probably grown up in, in church your entire life. I'm one of those. And from the time I was born, I was in church. I've seen more Christmas Eve services than I could possibly count. I've seen more nativities than I could possibly count. I've been to Christmas celebrations more than probably anybody in this room, because it's part of my job. This is what I do. And if I'm not careful, my proximity to this thing that we celebrate each and every year can affect the way that I receive this thing. It might affect the way that I see what takes place each and every year. It's kind of like taking kids to go see Christmas lights. Now, I want to be honest with you. I'm one of those dads who's like, oh, great idea. Let's put all the children in a van and we'll drive around town for a couple hours while they scream and fight in the back. And we'll look at these lights. And every yard is the exact same color and the exact same thing. Oh, wait, this yard, they have some music. Now, that's interesting. And we do it every year, right? And you're like, what a terrible person. You're right. I apologize. I'm just being real. We get in the van and we drive around, we look at this thing, and I'm like, okay, yes, that's the same yard as last year, it's the same lights as last year, and we do it every single time. But if you've ever been to see lights with children, you know it's a completely different experience from them, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the eyes of a child, when we go see these lights, I mean, they're, they're like mesmerized by what they see. When we go with my boys, they're like, dad, can you believe that yard? I'm like, yes, son, actually I can because it's the same one as last year. But to them, it does not matter. It's fresh. It's new. It's exciting. Me, I'm that old guy who's just bored with the whole thing. So we did it last year. 
We'll do it again next year. I'm afraid that some of us who have been in the church long enough, who've been doing this Christian thing long enough, we've celebrated enough Christmases that for a lot of us, it's become old hat. We are bored by it all. And so when it comes down to it, when we celebrate Christmas, we don't really celebrate what it truly, truly entails. We don't see it for what it actually is. For us, it's something that just gets in the way because our proximity can affect our receptivity. If we're too close, sometimes we don't receive it for what it is. Let me remind you once again of what nativity means. This birth of Jesus, it is the God of the universe pulling on skin, becoming one of us to walk this earth to rescue us. It is beautiful. It's the most beautiful story that's ever been told. And for a lot of us, it is so boring. We've heard it so many times. I'm afraid for us if grace ever becomes boring. If the grace and the love of God becomes anything other than spectacular every single time we think of it. No matter who you are and no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, this grace is for you. And Christ has come for you. That is not boring. That is not old hat. That is something that's fresh and new. May we never allow our proximity to this thing called nativity to be something that keeps us from receiving what it truly means. If we ever find ourselves in a place where it no longer affects the way we treat people, if it no longer affects the way we make decisions within our life, it doesn't affect the way we think about the world, the way we prioritize, the way we spend our resources, our time, our energy, we've missed it completely. We're too close to see. Let that sink in for just a moment. As you think about the next 10 days, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, what does it mean to you? Does it move you in any kind of way? Or is it something that just gets in the way? Because a lot of us in this room, for being honest, I'm the first one in line. We're running, we're running dangerously close to missing Jesus altogether in the whole thing. We bought a nativity set for our boys a few years back, a wooden little nativity set that we set up during the Christmas season, this Advent season. And um, last year, typically, it all goes back in the box in the little plastic parts. It gets packed up nicely with all the other Christmas stuff, and then it comes out each and every year. And we realized pretty recently, a few weeks ago, that we had not put it out yet. And the problem was it had never got put back with all the other stuff. It had just stayed in our upstairs room where the Xbox is and the boys go. And Owen Miller had gotten a hold of it, which is never a good thing. So we walked upstairs, and sure enough, it was strewn throughout the entire room. So we went and picked up all the parts. And the good news is we had everything. We had like the shepherds, check. We had the star, check. We had Mary, check. Joseph, check. Barnyard animals, check. We had all this stuff. But we were missing one thing. Jesus. We lost Jesus. I felt so bad. What kind of pastor am I if I lose Jesus in my nativity set? And so we searched high and low. We looked everywhere upstairs and we, we have not found it still. So it sat in the box. And in the box, all the plastic parts and pieces, everything's filled in except for this one little piece. And what's interesting to me is the smallest piece in the entire set, right in the middle, and it's empty. Here's my concern for us this morning. Jesus is the smallest piece in any nativity set that you have at home. It's the smallest piece. But it is the crux of the entire thing. 
And if we find ourselves during Christmas forgetting about what he means and what this birth has done to us within our lives and has offered us through Christ, we have missed the entire thing. And so sometimes we can become so familiar with this story. It's been told so many times. We've seen it so many times that we no longer see it for what it actually is. And in this story in Matthew, Herod, he's the closest one to what's going on. His scribes, the priests there, they were the closest ones. They had no clue. And the Magi, who were the furthest away, they're the only ones who get what's going on here. Something significant, something spectacular has happened, and we're coming to see for ourselves. We're coming to see for ourselves. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 7 through 8, Herod gets a hold of the fact these Magi have come, and he says this, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me so that I may go and worship myself. Now it goes without saying in the story, Herod is not a good dude. He does not have the same intentions that the Magi do. He's not interested in worshiping him. He's not genuine. He has no interest in worshiping the king, and he has not good intentions at all. Herod was consumed and focused on only one thing, securing the power that he already had, making sure there was no Jewish prophecy about a king who would be born that could possibly endanger the power that he had claimed for himself. You see, Herod had vested interest in making sure that everything stayed exactly the same, and the birth of a new king would be disruptive to what he has always wanted, his ultimate authority in that area. So he tells them, go and find this baby. And if you find him, come and tell me because I want to go worship myself. I get get the sense that for some of us, one of the reasons that we leave Jesus out of the Christmas equation is yes, because we're so close, we we just unintentionally miss the most important piece. But sometimes if we're honest, we miss Jesus because we don't want to acknowledge him in the whole story as king. Because if he's king, that means we're not. If he's the final authority, that means we're not. And if we're honest, a lot of us, we have vested interest in making sure that nothing changes, that everything stays the same. Because I've lived my life since last Christmas in this certain kind of way, and I don't want it to change. And to acknowledge Christ as king means something might have to change. I have control over all the people in my life the way I want it right now, and I cannot change. It's got to stay the same. I continue to ignore the need in the world around me because I don't want to be uncomfortable. I look out for myself and myself alone. A lot of us, we have vested interest in making sure that every Christmas we hold strictly to just the holiday because to acknowledge the birth of Jesus as king and authority in our life means that something might have to change. I'll be honest with you. Some folks that I know within the church are the most entitled people I've ever met in my entire life. Some of the people I love the most can't see past the end of their nose. And when this happens, too often we are more concerned about keeping ourselves in the way that we want things to go rather than allowing God to come in and wreck us and disturb us. You see, some of us, we worship a season rather than we worship a savior. It's easier that way. We have the Hallmark movies, we've got the nice cookies, we've got the hot chocolate, it's all cut and dry. We come on Christmas Eve, we do our thing, we go home, and that's it. We can't let it be about more. But the problem is this story is about so much more. 
This is an invitation every single time to see the nativity afresh and anew, this birth of Jesus, who is our Savior. See, we first and foremost have to recognize that our world is a mess, that our lives are a mess, that our nation is a mess, and we can't fix it on our own. It's not something that we can do. We need someone to intervene. And the nativity is God's way of intervening into our life and changing everything. My my question is this. All of us as families, how do we worship Jesus during Christmas that's anything different than the world around us? Or do we just spend money we don't have on stuff that won't last for people who are going to re-gift it anyways? What's, What's unique? What's different? What is Jesus being Lord and King? What does that do anything within our life? Can it be seen by the outside world? You see, in this story, we get an indication of what it looks like to see this nativity scene as something spectacular and significant. The Magi go and they find this baby. And the Bible says this. After they had heard from the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose ahead, went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they what? Worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by a different route. In the Greek, as the writer tells this story, when they show up to the house and Mary's there and the child's there, the Bible says they worship him. They worship him. This is what it looks like to not lose the wonder of the nativity, to not miss the beauty of the birth. They worshiped him. It's a very interesting Greek word. It's proskuneo. It literally means to have reverence for. It means to kneel before. In the simplest terms, it means to kiss. In the ancient world, when a king would come and you'd have an encounter with a king, you would kneel down before that king. You'd extend his hand. You would kiss his hand as a sign of reverence and honor. And so these magi, when they show up at the house, they come and they worship this baby. They come and worship this child, this king, and they bring him reverence and honor. And they bring gifts to him. The Bible says they bring gold Gold was a symbol of royalty and kingship. They bring frankincense, which was used in incense and burning alongside of priests and in worship. And lastly, they bring myrrh. And myrrh was an oil that was used to embalm bodies before burial. So you see, even in the three gifts, these valuable gifts that these magi bring to Jesus, with each one it was connected to who he was as king and priest and sacrifice already pointing to his death one day on a cross. It's worship. So what do we have to offer a king? If we don't miss what takes place in the nativity, if we want to come and worship Jesus, what do we have to offer him? We don't have gold, frankincense. What do we offer him? And each year when we come to Christmas time, my, my boys, my family, my kids will get me a gift sometimes. And if you're a dad in the room, you know these kind of gifts. You're like, oh, thanks for the socks, man. It's so nice. Thanks for the tie, the tie with the reindeer. I'll wear that all year long. 
It's for the mug, you know, like these nice little things. And that's nice, but you know, you know what I really want? Like really, really want. I don't want, I don't want any of that. I want times where I, where I sit on the couch with my boys and watch a movie and they fall asleep on me. I want times where we actually slow down enough for a few days. We look each other in the eye. We play board games. We enjoy each other. That's what I want. I don't want another thing that I open and then put on a shelf and forget about. I want, I want love and affection. I want connection. I heard it on the front row. You know what Jesus really wants for us? Ourselves. He wants our lives every part of who we are. This is what it looks like to worship the king. It's to offer him all that we are, everything that we have. We kneel before him in reverence. We worship like a kiss. We offer him our failures, our abilities, our hurt, our pain, our future, our past, our gifts, our talents, everything. Jesus, it's yours. If I really believe you're king, if I really believe you are God with skin on, come to rescue us, then I give you everything that I have. It's all yours. It's easier said than done, though, isn't it? This year, I'm so excited because there's many ways we can express this to one another, this kind of change and transformation that Jesus does within us. We have a really tangible way this year. Next Sunday, December 22nd, we're gonna be taking up an offering, a specific offering, we're going to provide two homes here in Lexington. As a church, we get a chance to provide two homes to two families in Lexington that otherwise wouldn't have a home. You know how it happens? People who say, Jesus, you have my whole life. I'll gladly give financially to that. I'll gladly give physically. I'll swing a hammer to make that happen. It's an expression of what he's done within us. So some of that money is going to go here in Lexington, Jesse Street, right across Lexington to provide these two homes. And we as a church get to do this. But also, all the way across the globe in Nepal, we're going to provide homes for families who have been devastated by an earthquake in 2015, four years ago, who are still waiting on a home. And we can provide that. Tangible, practical ways that we can say this Christmas. It's not about the season. It's about the Savior. It's what it's truly about. And I can express that physically by being a part of this thing. The very end of the story, in verse 12, the writer says that they're warned in a dream, the Magi, the wise men are warned, don't go back to Herod. And it says instead, they went back to their home country through a different route. A different route. Now the word route is very specific. It's actually used all over the New Testament, but the word route actually means path, route, or could mean way. It's the exact same word that's used by Jesus when he tells his listeners and his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I am the path. I'm the direction that you go. So yes, do these magi go a different kind of way home and avoid Herod altogether? Yes. But I think what the writer is trying to say is even deeper, there's another kind of route that they're going that's different than just the physical. There's been some kind of transformation that's taken place as they've met Jesus, the King of Kings, the one they've come to find. And I wonder this morning, 
if there are some of us in this room today who have come here walking a certain path, a certain way within our life, and we can encounter Christ, maybe for the very first time, and leave this room today going a different route, that'd be so noticeable for those around us. Our families would see it. Our kids would see it. Our coworkers would see it. Our employers would see it. Everyone would see this new way of living because of what Jesus is doing in us and through us. That's how you celebrate nativity. That's how you celebrate birth. God, whatever you want to do, would you do it in me? I see you as King and Lord. I see you as the authority in my life, and I give you my life, all of it. Would you bow with me this morning? Let's pray. God, I can imagine in this room, there's so many different folks who encounter this season in different kinds of ways, who see this story in different kinds of ways. But I pray this morning, God, that you'd help us to see it afresh and anew. I pray, God, you'd help maybe our proximity that's gotten in the way. We've been so close to this for so long. We've lost the meaning. I pray you would awaken our hearts to it once again. I pray for us this morning, God, myself included, for all the different ways that we want to keep things the same. We want to, we want to keep our own authority in place, that we, we disregard you completely, Jesus. Would you forgive us? May you come and do a work within us in a way that only you can. May we welcome you into our life and give it all to you. You're the only one who's worthy of our worship, God. So we give you reverence. We give you honor. We give you glory. So Father, I pray that even now that you would just touch our hearts by your spirit today. Help us to know that you have come among us. You are not somewhere far off, but you're right here, right now. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.